Let me lead us in prayer as we look at uh, this passage together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll speak to us uh, by your Spirit, uh, through your Word, uh, and we pray that uh, you'll help us to see Jesus uh, and appreciate him more and more uh, and be more and more like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard this said to you? My God is a God of love, and he would never send anyone to hell. Or, God loves us and gave us free will, so we can just pick and choose what we like from the Bible, what we want to follow, and what we don't, and he would never punish us for that. I've heard people say that. In fact, people who come to church sometimes. Have you? And is it right? How would we know if it's right or not? We all believe God loves us. Does, it, does the fact that God loves us mean that we, we don't have to repent of sin? Does it mean he won't punish people? Could a loving God still send people to hell? You know, one of the problems that we face today is that many people want to, to make up their own religion. Uh, maybe use some kind of armchair philosophy, trying to work out if punishment and love are compatible or mutually exclusive. Or maybe just go by wishful thinking. Right? I don't want to get punished, but I don't want to repent. So I believe God won't punish. Uh, but friends, that, that's, that's, that's foolish at best, isn't it? Right? Wishful thinking is not a good basis for making decisions in any area. And this is the worst because so much is at stake. This is not just life and death. This is heaven and hell, eternity. We're not at liberty to make up God. Made up God as an idol, not the real God. We've got to deal with a God who is there. God who is there has revealed himself perfectly in Jesus Christ. And so we've got to come to Jesus and see the answers to our questions. Uh, and we see some of that in our passage today. Our passage is set the very first Palm Sunday, Sunday before Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus has been traveling, he's heading towards Jerusalem, and he knows that in Jerusalem he's going to be rejected and killed. But he goes anyway because, well, this is part of God's plan. He's going to be executed for our sins. He's going to take the punishment we deserve so we can be forgiven. He's going to be buried. He's then, he's, on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead and he will ascend into heaven, vindicated as the king that God has appointed to rule his people forever. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be made king, but Jerusalem will be a place of suffering first before it is a place of glory. And now he's getting close to Jerusalem. In verse 29 of uh, Luke 19, He's approaching the villages of Bethphage and Bethany. It's only a mile or two outside the city. He's at the Mount of Olives where the, where, where the prophet Zechariah predicted the Messiah would show himself. And he sends two disciples into a village near there with some very strange instructions. In verse 30 he says, Go into the village in front of you, and where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Right? Now, we don't know if Jesus made arrangements beforehand. Right? And this is like the code that he's telling them, like a you know, secret password for the owners of the cult. Or that he's using supernatural knowledge to requisition transport, which the kings had the right to do in the ancient world. But either way, it all happens as he says. They find the cult, and the owners are literally in the Greek, the lords of it, ask why are they untying it? And they literally say, the Lord of it has need. And they bring the cult to Jesus. 
And then they do something else, something unusual. Because, you know, pilgrims to Jerusalem, normally for the last part of their journey, they will dismount from whatever beast they are, they are riding and they walk for the last stage of their pilgrimage. But at the end of verse 35, what happens? They set Jesus on the colt, opposite. And what's the significance of that? Well, there are two things that can be said about this from the Old Testament. Right? Firstly, in 1 Kings 1.33, King Solomon, David's literal son, had ridden on David's donkey to be anointed king. Right? So a previous son of David had come to this very city a thousand years before to be made king riding on a donkey. But the cult that Jesus set on had never been set on before. Because on the one hand, Jesus is the son of David, but on the other hand, his kingship is without precedence. And then secondly, there's Zechariah 9.9 from our Old Testament reading. You remember that? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right? God's king would come to Jerusalem in this way. He would be righteous and humble and bring salvation to his people. But there's another unusual thing that these disciples do. Look at verse 36. He says, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Again, there's precedence in the Old Testament. right? In 2 Kings 9.13, the people spread their cloaks on the ground before Jehu when he was proclaimed king of Israel. Because in the ancient mind, clothes represent their wearer. So you spread your clothes before someone, it's a sign of submission to them. They are saying that Jesus is the king and they are expressing that claim by spreading their garments before him. And he lets them do that. Because he knows that he is the king. He is the king entering Jerusalem, his capital city, for his coronation. Now when someone comes for his coronation, you can expect a lot of fanfare. You can expect crowds to be shouting, Long live the king! Or Daulat Tuanku! Or something like that, right? And that's exactly what happens here. As he gets close to Jerusalem, he's coming down now from the Mount of Olives on the Jerusalem side. Uh, in verse 37, the whole multitude of disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they've seen. Right? Jesus has healed the sick. He has made the lame walk. He's made the deaf hear. He's given the blind their sight. He's fed the multitudes. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's cleansed the lepers. All those things in these last three years showing that God has come to save his people. He's done the works of the Messiah, God's promised king. And they proclaim, they praise God in the words that echo Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They make it even more explicit in verse 38, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There's no doubt about it. The crowds recognize Jesus as king. They acclaim him. And they anticipate with excitement what his kingly rule, kingly rule will bring. They say in verse 38, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, it's one thing to praise the king who comes to bring peace on earth. But they are even implying that this king can bring peace in heaven. As if what he's coming to do has got cosmic significance, not just earthly one. And their cry of glory is in the highest. Are they implying that the glory of Jesus is not just an earthly glory, but a heavenly one as well? This is too much, lah, at least for the Pharisees. They're getting too enthusiastic. Too big they make Jesus. 
And so some of the Pharisees in the crowd say to Jesus in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus wasn't about to stop them. What the disciples was doing was perfectly appropriate and right. And Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now at this point, we're not quite sure what he means by that. Is he saying that whole creation, he's worthy of, of worship of the whole creation, even the stones? Or is he saying something like, you know, the stones were some kind of witness uh, in the Old Testament. In many places in the Old Testament, stones are set up as some kind of witness. But then what are they witnessing to? Both also might be right. But let's wait until later and see. Verse 41. When Jesus draws near, he sees the city. Uh, even today, when you come down from the Mount of Olives, there's an amazing view of the whole city. All right, here's a picture I took uh, while I was there to show you. Uh, and, and where you see the, the, the dome of the mosques there, uh, that whole area there is where Jesus would have seen the temple. All right, so he looks at this whole city. And then something very surprising happens. In the midst of the fanfare and the praise and the excitement, Jesus begins to cry. He becomes very emotional. And the word there is a really strong one. It's not just like he's welling up with tears. He's sobbing. When he draws near, look at verse 41. He wept over it. Uh, Just behind from where I took that picture, there is now a church building in the shape of a tear to commemorate this. But why is Jesus crying? Why is he weeping? Well, listen to what he says in verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. How he wishes that they could know how to have peace. But now, he says, they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Second mention of stone. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. 600 years before this, God had punished Jerusalem for their sins. There had been an awful siege. city had been destroyed. People killed or taken into exile. And now Jesus is saying, this is going to happen again. You see, in Christ Jesus, God has come to his people. He's about to enter his special city. He's about to enter the temple. But he's going to be rejected. He's going to be tried with a sham trial, handed over the Gentiles, mocked and spat upon and killed and crucified. Left for dead. God is visiting his people, but they're about to reject him. And they should have known better. They have the Old Testament scriptures. They read them all the time but they didn't relate them to Jesus. They had Jesus performing all the signs that showed the coming of the kingdom. They had his teaching, they had his miracles, they had everything. They should have known better. But they closed their minds, they hardened their hearts, and they did not know the time of their visitation. And Jesus wept for them as he pronounced his judgment upon them. See, friends, in Jesus, we see the very heart of God himself. God loves people 
even the people that reject him. He takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. He says that. His heart goes out to them in love. He does not want people to perish, but he wants people to repent and come to him. But the fact that Jesus wept for the people of Jerusalem doesn't stop him from proclaiming that judgment. And 40 years later, that judgment actually came. The Romans did to Jerusalem what the Babylonians had done 600 years before. The siege was awful. The city was completely destroyed. The people were killed or scattered. Jerusalem was left in rubble. The magnificent buildings, especially the glorious temple, was reduced to stones, just as Jesus says. And then suddenly we realize what Jesus meant earlier. Jerusalem rejected him, silenced his praises, and in the end, the stones cried out and spoke of the fact that God brings judgment on those who reject his son. My friends, the fact that God loves people doesn't mean there's no judgment. God loves those who reject him. God weeps over the lost, but he will still judge the world. And that physical judgment of Jerusalem is a picture of the final judgment that is to come, which is far, far bigger. Those who reject the Son, those whose sins are not covered by his blood shed on the cross on their behalf, those who are unrepentant will have to face God's eternal righteous judgment for their sins. We can't deny that reality as much as we might wish that were not the case. But we can never talk about hell in a smug or angry or unfeeling kind of way. We can only do so with tears. Because God loves people, even those who reject him. And yet at the very same time, he brings them to judgment. And we know these go together because the God whom we know is the God who reveals himself in Jesus. And we have seen his heart today. So friends, how do we respond to Jesus? Well, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, indeed it is right that we should acclaim him as our king. He is the one who has fulfilled all God's prophecies. He entered Jerusalem that day. Uh, he is the king who went to Jerusalem to die for you and for me. He is the king who loves us so much he is willing to give up his life. He was willing to place himself under the wrath of God for our sins on our behalf so that we don't have to face that judgment. So that we can be part of that wonderful community that we saw in, in our epistle reading today of God's people from all nations and tribes and languages standing before the throne, worshipping him, enjoying him, being in his presence forever. And even today, we join with people from all over the world in acclaiming Jesus, that he deserves all the glory, all the honor. He is the perfect, loving, rightful king of every man, woman, and child on this planet. And that salvation belongs to him. And we will continue that worship for all eternity. And we don't just acclaim him as king of everyone. We bow before him as king of our own lives. 
who deserves our allegiance and obedience and loyalty. He's, he's our king. We mustn't just acclaim him, we must follow him. We must have hearts like his, hearts that really love lost people. We have hearts like that. If we don't care for people who are not saved, we're just so comfortable with our church situation, our Christian friends, we're indifferent to the lost, then, then we're not being like Christ. Lah. Jesus felt deeply for the people who were heading for judgment. And I know many people in our community feel the same. I've sat with a number of people here in the cathedral as they've cried and wept for loved ones who don't know Jesus. If you're someone like that, then know that God cries and weeps for them too. He loves them even more than you love them. He is never indifferent. He loves people passionately, even those who reject him. We are to love and be genuinely sorry for those who reject Jesus. And we must never allow our own wishes to blur our thinking about God's perfect and righteous judgment. To close, can I ask if there's anyone here not asking you to put up your hand, just asking. Who still doesn't know if, how they can have peace with God forever. Is there anyone here, or who's joining us online, who still doesn't know what makes for peace? If you need to find out, please find out. Right, put a connect card, so marriage.my slash connect. Put in the comment section, I want someone to explain to me more about Jesus. How can I have peace with God for all eternity? Or you come and join our new course called Hope Explore. That will really help you understand the good things that we look forward to when we trust in Jesus. You can sign up at sinmarys.my slash find out more. Or ask your Christian friend or your brother and sister whom you trust to open the Bible with you. Do find out. Or just go and take your Bible and start reading. Read from Luke's Gospel. See Jesus more clearly. I also wonder if there's anyone here who's still resisting Jesus as king. Because you know that uh, it's going to mean that you have to change some things lah, in your life. Well, if that is you then. <clears throat> Remember that Jesus loves you even more than he loved Jerusalem. He, he, he really, really, really loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. He's willing to go all the way to hang on the cross to, to take the punishment you deserve for your sins so God can be just and yet still forgive you. His death on the cross is, is the way that you can be saved. But you must turn to him and receive him. Don't go the way of Jerusalem. The storms cry out in warning. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that true King that you promised. And as the crowds acclaimed him as King so many years ago, we acclaim him as our King today. 
And we look forward to continuing to acclaim him with all your people gathered around the throne on that last day forever. We pray that you give us hearts that beat like his. Hearts that really, really love other people. Hearts that are genuinely concerned for the lost. Who know the truth about your judgment and don't water it down because that's how we'd like things to be. And Father, we pray that if there are people here or online who are still not trusting your Son, we pray that you have mercy upon them and that you send your Spirit to open blind eyes and soften hard hearts that they may trust in Christ crucified and hand their lives over to him as their king. Please, Father, work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.